0: This is The Movies That Made Me, with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Take
1: your best shot.
0: Take my best shot. So, So, I'm a kid. I'm, uh, I think Tarzan was the first, my first book without pictures, but, uh, I slowly, um, transitioned into Sherlock Holmes and, uh, I had probably read all of them, uh, several times and was hungry for more. And it's crazy to think that there was a time when, you know, there, there, there was only a limited, a finite amount of Sherlock Holmes. Lucky I happened by. That is right. (laughs) And I do want to ask, it's not that uh, our, our whole thing here is that we don't talk about our guest work, but but I have to, you know, I may never get to talk to you again, so I, I do have to ask, but my recollection is the kind of the mashup fiction genre, if you will, was not a very common thing. I think like maybe Philip Jose Farmer had done some stuff, but the idea of Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud meeting. Um, Wasn't I mean? It's still a great idea, but it was it was radical. Well, first of
1: all, just to be clear, it wasn't my idea. Oh, Uh,
0: a lot of okay. Can we have that guy then? Because
1: well, that guy was probably Freud. Oh, okay. Liked Sherlock Holmes as his bedtime stories. Mm. Um. So he he was very fond of um reading Sherlock Holmes stories. He knew he had been compared to Sherlock Holmes. And he actually, at one point in one of the case histories, uh, wrote the phrase, I followed the labyrinth of her mind, Sherlock Holmes-like, and mm. led me to whatever. So I, I would love to claim a lot of things, but I can't claim that one for start. The other thing um, is that I think a lot of historical novelists, starting with Walter Scott and maybe earlier, have done what we call mashups in which fictitious characters in the books encounter what I'll just call historical figures. So so I didn't even start that. And neither, for that matter, did E.L. Doctorow. Ragtime came out about the same time. Oh, that's right. So, okay. yep. Yeah. I lay claim to nothing so far.
0: <laughs> but, but there was something. And there was still. It's pretty interesting. It wasn't like Sherlock Holmes just happens to bump into Sigmund Freud. I mean, they 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 team up, and I got to say, to my young mind at least, um, uh, it was a a radical revelation. And then uh, made into a terrific film. And then um, uh, you were responsible for a movie I I love to this day and recently showed to my wife. Uh, time After Time, which also sort of, I guess, followed that same model a little bit. H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper are teaming up also as one of the great love stories on film, which um, you can't entirely take credit for writing and directing. It seems like it was happening in front of your camera. Uh, but, um, and then people can't remember. I mean, as a kid, I'd gotten into Star Trek in reruns, um, but the show was off the air and there was no, there'd been a cartoon, which wasn't great. And there was for a while hints that there might be a movie, which was very exciting. And I can't tell you how enthusiastic I, am. I could not wait to see Star Trek, the motion picture when it came out. And um, I've never gone back to that film. I know it has its fans. It was so crushingly disappointing to someone who thought that, uh, you know, finally, after all these years, uh, I don't think I cried in the movie theater, but uh, I, I might have. And then came the sequel. And I, I am not blowing smoke up your ass, sir. That, that movie to a whole bunch of people, as I'm sure you know, especially if you were of a certain age, a young teenager, was explosive. I remember just seeing it in the theater opening day, and we were all, it was just packed full of people who were just bouncing up and down in our seats, just cheering and shouting and roaring with joy. And it was, it was the combination of the fact that, A, the movie was so good, but B that you are coming in on the heels of that last one, just completely prepared to be disappointed again. Um, just just phenomenal stuff. It's a watching... pity
1: you can't see my face. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I gotta say, we we were watching uh, the new Picard recently the other day, and I was just thinking about. I I do not believe that any of this stuff. I don't believe there'd be a next generation. I don't be. I don't think Star Trek would be the massive franchise that it is today if Rathacon hadn't worked. I think that would have been the end of it. And uh, you were then responsible. There was that period there. Everybody knows the first Star Trek movies. It's the even numbered ones you see because uh, you had a hand in Star Trek Four, of course, and then wrote, directed uh, Star Trek Six. Um, I'm glad
1: I didn't suggest any introductory remarks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're they're all I mean just just glorious. So um, uh, I mean, I've done a bunch of other stuff, but, but I mean this this these these alone, my God. So um, it was such a thrill to uh, to be able to uh, get Nicholas Meyer here uh, on our on our microphones to talk about some of the movies that made him. I can't tell you, but um, yeah, you you were you were uh, very responsible for both a book uh, and some movies that made me. So um very, very happy to have you, you, sir. Thank you. Um, and Joe, you're a <laughs> you're familiar with this guy, right? <laughs>
3: uh actually uh Nick and I uh, have a, a project that we're have been working on for a number of uh a number of months and uh hope to actually maybe make someday when the uh business settles down to a point where every executive doesn't expect to be fired in the next five minutes uh, uh and, when is that um, pray tell uh, it's that- not it's <laughs> not, no time right no time right now because the the scuttlebutt that I've got from all the people I've talked to from overseas is that uh everybody's afraid to do anything because yep. they, they're so uncertain about the future of the business and the, the theatrical business particularly. But um, it, it's, a, it's an odd, it's a very odd time. And we've had odd times before, but this one, this is a post-COVID odd time, which makes it special. But anyway, um, Nick is, Nick is a, a really talented guy and very funny and a, a, a terrific writer and um, just a great guy to hang around with.
0: Uh yeah and and, and yeah so Joe's like hey uh, you want to have Nick Meyer on the show and I went <laughs> <laughs> so it was a no brainer anyway um welcome welcome Nicholas to uh the show thank you um yeah well let's let's jump into it I mean were you growing up were you like primarily a movie kid were you a book kid or were you like what and what was your what was your access point to film was it theater TV
1: well I'm gonna be exposing myself for the antediluvian creature that I am. But when I I was born about 20 minutes after World War II, and we we didn't have a TV, nobody had a TV. And I had never seen a movie until I was about seven years old. And I was taken around a corner to see a movie that you know, it was a huge image on a gigantic screen. I'd never seen anything like this. I mean, I could have been watching Edwin S. Porter's The Great Train Robbery with the locomotive racing at me. So I was, <laughs> I was completely, I ran screaming from the theater. Okay, but I was terrified. And then oh, I man. had what my father, who was a shrink, called a counterphobic response. And counterphobia is where the object feared becomes the object loved. Mm. So I not only fell in love with this movie in particular and developed a man crush on the star, but also with movies in general, I became fixated. And it, it, like my other fixations, I never abandon them. I only add to them. Um, <laughs> So I I think I was five years old the first time I was on my way to bed and heard a recording of Carmen. And I fixated, fixated, came downstairs and just, you know, to this day, these are my lodestars, uh, what we're talking about.
0: Oh, wow, fantastic. Well, what what was the film?
1: The Beggar's Opera, directed by a 23-year-old Peter Brook and starring Laurence Olivier. As Captain McKeith.
0: wow!
1: When How did you
3: happen to happen to uh, encounter that particular movie, which is not exactly a kitty matinee staple?
1: It was playing next door. It was, it was playing at the Carnet Theater on on Sixty First Street or Sixtieth Street, and it was before they built Cinema One, Cinema Two. This was in New York City, um, and it. it When they were going to hang Captain McKeith, that's when I ran out screaming. And the fact that it was um, had music, the Beggar's Opera, sort of the first musical, um, didn't detract from its realism in my head. It added to it, which Hmm. is, you know, what sort of opera does anyway? It's like experiencing life stoned, Um, and that's sort of how it it hit me.
0: Wow. Wow, that's amazing. So you actually thought they were going to kill this person that you would become attached it's to. Very
1: large person because a very large person. It was it was very large <laughs> person.
0: Uh, so there's a personal safety aspect there too. And the other thing know. was
1: I I around the corner was was a a genuine movie palace called the RKO 58th Street, who was eventually replaced by Alexander's department store and now it's a big condominium complex, but at the time it was a full city block. Yeah. From third to Lex, and the seats were so far apart that you could have been Will Chamberlain, and you you would not have been able to rest your feet on the row in front of you. It was impossible, and I just took up residence in this place, which primarily, I think, in retrospect, played twentieth-century Fox movies. So I saw a lot of Tyrone Power and a lot of Guy Rolfe, um, and. I was just fascinated, and one of the things that fascinated me was that um, when the hero was in trouble, they always ran into the most beautiful women that I had ever seen anywhere. Certainly, you didn't see them on the street, and I just kept wondering, in my you know ten-year-old way, where they kept these women. <laughs>
0: And and how often in, in trouble uh, they run into these women is the, um, the solution to their peril, temporarily at least, to uh, embrace them and kiss them and pretend they're together so that the uh, the people chasing them think they're a couple.
1: Often enough to keep me <laughs> buying the popcorn.
0: <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite uh, horror movie cliches. It, all, it always used to work, and I think you'd, uh, you could never get the away with it. The thing
1: that anything. I thought was so funny is that they – you know, I remember this as a
0: kid watching this,
1: I thought n- they never remark on what these women look like. It's not like they stop dead in the story and go, Holy fuck, <laughs> where did you come from? No, they just act like it's a regular thing. Right. Sophia Loren, it's Marilyn Monroe, it's a regular thing. <laughs> it's eleanor parker it's regular
0: it's James completely said. normal It's completely normal uh well let's jump in let's let's talk about some of these do you want to go in kind of uh, chronological order or are you asking is who's who's being in is is
1: uh, is joe part of this conversation is he being asked uh, no no, oh, no, 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 we, no 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 no
3: we joe, don't joe. we don't do our favorite movies we do your
1: yeah, we're just talking oh, about oh, yours. oh okay so i'll shoot because i made my list
0: that's right. Yeah, we've done like 300 of these. Nobody, nobody cares what we think anymore. This is—they've uh... heard it all. They've heard it all. <laughs> heard it all. <laughs> well, the the
1: movie that changed my life probably in the most amount of ways was Henry V, the Laurence hmm. Olivier thing. And I went to see the movie because, among other things, my leftover man crush from the from the Kid of the Beggars Opera was all right was starring in this movie they never mentioned the word Shakespeare Mm. but they had pictures of horses and swords and armor and that was good enough for me it was my guy and it was I thought the name of the movie was Henry V.
0: Henry V of course yeah
1: and I snuck out of school where I was a dismal student and we had read Shakespeare in school and it meant nothing to me I did not Understand it. So I I snuck down to the Thalia on West End Avenue or off West End Avenue at two in the afternoon, and I stayed there till the theater closed because you could do that then. There was no way of contacting my parents, who must have imagined that I'd been abducted or or something. (laughs) And I just watched this movie again and again and again. And I and I learned and I keep learning from this movie a lot of things. One is I thought, okay, this is the best movie. Two, this is the best writer, whoever he is. Number three, (laughs) the other guy is the best actor, you know, and I didn't know what directing was, so that didn't enter into it. Um, But I thought, I'm never gonna read another Shakespeare play until I see it first, because it's not meant to be read. and i i was just having orgasm after orgasm watching this thing and i also as i continued to watch it as i aged and kept coming back to it i realized that there were other lessons that you can learn including the notion that art thrives on restrictions this this movie they didn't have any money to make this movie it was made during the war it was made for a buck 75 it was whatever but they had turned every deficiency, every defect, every lack into a strength. And the way was pointed to them by Shakespeare himself. Mm. On your imaginary forces, work. Think when we speak of horses that you see them planting their proud hoofs in the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings. Yeah. I remember that lesson when I was making Star Trek II. You bet.
0: I was going to say, yes, didn't they? Yes. Give you- yes. And,
1: and, and, I, and, I, and I became a Shakespeare fool for the rest of my life. In fact, if I, if I were good enough at this point, I would like to write a semi-autobiographical Borges story about a guy who's reached the age where he can only think in Shakespearean sentences. <laughs> and I don't mean paraphrases, I mean the actual lines, because I realized that I have never had and never will have a thought that this guy didn't express first and better, which in some ways is quite restful. But, you know, you you do go around and circle. Sur- so, yes, the Henry V movie... Um, And if you had told me, you know, that one day I would meet Laurence Olivier, I would have thought that was ridiculous. And if you would think that one day he's going to be speaking your stupid dialogue in a movie. You know, (laughs) that was that was more beyond ridiculous anyway. So those are the big highlight takeaways, I think, from. Me watching Henry V. I also got very involved with the music by William Walton, um, and how the the sound the sound effects in the story in the play in the movie drop away when you get to the battle, and it's all replaced by music. And what's happening in the story is that the story starts very artificially in a playhouse. And bit by bit by bit, it becomes increasingly realistic by the time you get to the Battle of Agincourt. But even then, there's one bit of artifice left, which is the music. And then as you go from the battle back to the end of the story, it becomes more and more artificial until you're back in the playhouse. Mm. I, I was beyond, I was over the moon.
0: Is that something you think you were consciously noticing when you first saw this, or is that just after going back? And I just kept getting goosebumps. You know,
1: God for Harry, England and St. George, and they get on this white horse, and he says, you know, in all the time since I came to France, I was not angry till this moment. Whoa. You know, I'm...
3: Well, just to highlight how much classier Nick is than I am. <laughs> the only time that I ever stayed at a movie long enough to uh, have my parents call the police was a double bill of World Without End and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. <laughs> it was it was a far cry from Henry
1: V. You're talking about virtually the same movie when all is said and done. <laughs> um, exactly. The thing about the other time I stayed in a movie, finally enough, was another medieval. Movie. I, I went to see the Court Jester at the Roxy Theater, oh. and my parents went berserk because I kept sitting through the the movie. So I'm not all that classy. And can a you great do it? Movie.
0: Can you guys do it? I used to be able to do it. I can't do it. What the
1: flagon with the dragon, the chalice, the poison with the pestles, and the the poison with,
0: with the, the p- palace p- is the uh, on three.
1: <laughs> the vessel with the pestle has the brew. <laughs> it is true. The palace the, and the flagon with the dra- the poison with the <laughs> it's just like it sounds in the movie
3: i actually used
1: to be i actually used to be able to do it i actually right? to- that's
0: yeah yeah there's a it's
3: still a it's still a wonderful movie and the best thing i think that Annie k
0: ever did oh God, i couldn't yeah. agree with you more yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Pellet with the poisons in the chalice with the palace, but the flagon with the dragon has the brew. that is true. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. They they Wait, they they, they ch- broke changed the it. chalice with they the palace. The ch- Poison with the pellets
0: and the vessel with the pestle. <laughs> you
1: yeah, had to be there, but it's
3: it's it's a great movie, and we recommend it highly.
0: Oh God, yeah, yeah, my God! If you've not seen it, uh, stop listening. Go back, watch <laughs> it. Come back, and you'll be in time for Nick's next movie, which is.
1: Well, I put I you know put them down sort of in chronological order, but but the, the the other movie is a movie called The Organizer. Um the organizer is directed by Mario Monticelli and stars Marcello Mostroianni and Annie Giraudet and Renato Salvatore. And this is a movie that proves if you need anything to prove it that a movie can make you interested in something you never thought you'd be interested in in a gazillion years. And it's, a, it's about a textile mill strike in Torino, Italy at the end of the 19th century. Don't yawn. Don't yawn. This is, <laughs> it, it was shot by Giuseppe Rotuno in Cinemascope, black and white. It's about 1965. And it has the enthralling Density and complexity of a novel. You were seeing Mastroianni as you will never see him in anything else, um, playing a ratty, fugitive Marxist professor who literally falls off a freight train into a town where the workers are trying to figure out to, what to do about the oppressive conditions under which they're forced to labor. And he becomes involved in helping them make their protest, which turns into a strike. does not end well, but you cannot stop watching and you meet all these people who come to life so completely as three-dimensional characters. That's what makes you think you're watching something by Charles Dickens or or George Eliot. Or, it has that, it's like a novel. It's like a book. Um, and it's enthralling and and moving and heartbreaking and all the things that you want a work of art to be. Henry James said that the least demand that you can make of a work of art is that it be interesting. Mm -hmm. most demand you can make is that it be moving, and this is terribly moving and involving. And... You don't get up for more popcorn. You just sit there and become more and more deeply
0: enmeshed in it. I've I've never seen this one, Joe. Are you? Uh... Oh
3: yes, sir. You're, you're You're you you miss something. It's it's fabulous movie. Not not
1: I'm
3: not, not I'm afraid very well known
1: anymore. Yeah, but, I'm, um, I'm there's to... a beautiful Criterion restoration of it. And my advice to you is don't sleep until you have seen it
3: uh it makes uh, a great double bill with the court gesture uh
0: <laughs> it doesn't sound like it somehow but um oh yeah no there it is the organizer um available where joe that's a criterion
3: where oh, no no
0: no 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 you're, even that is
3: available at movies unlimited
0: that's right our sponsor um oh, movies one, unlimited okay yes, yes no i'm uh, i'm uh, we'll get into that a little bit later but uh, Fantastic. I good lord, I'm looking at it. I've never even it's never crossed my consciousness. You'd
3: actually really like it.
0: I know it sounds like it. I'm I'm, I'm It's I'm, a, it's a stunner. It's a stunner.
1: And I and remember. and it and you you watch and it builds and it builds and it builds around these people. And you get to know them. You get to watch them. You get to root for them. And you also, you know, get to watch the bosses in action. And that's interesting, too.
0: Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. All right. Uh, checking checking it out. What, what is next? Sir? Um,
1: well, I wrote down, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, yeah. And I can sum that one up really easily. If you want to explain America to a Martian, <laughs> just show them this movie. Because it has everything about this country in within the space of 2 hours it has the good the bad the idealistic the vulgar the corrupt the media it's got it all and it is it's enthralling how sort of this premise which is not such a far-fetched premise namely a a substitute senator sent to to Washington to fill out a term. And they pick a guy they think is a patsy, who at the very least will be ignorant of what they're up to, uh, the the political machine. Um, And they underestimate him uh, in a sort of Candide-like way he manages to gum up the works. But in the process, it's a pretty uncompromising movie. Yes, it it ends happily. We've all been raised on 100 years of Hollywood endings, but not before it's put you through the ringer and told you a, thing, a lot of things that you may not fully know or may not fully understand. And it does it while telling a story, so you don't feel you're getting anything like a civics lecture.
0: Right. I do feel like the last time I watched it, that Claude Rains being shamed into doing the right thing was not, never not so, yeah, it didn't really play well anymore. <laughs> if it ever really played well, are we, do we just know too much now? But uh, Maybe, yeah, no, maybe we do. I, do. I do share your affection. For, I, mean, I, 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 ran,
3: I ran that picture for some friends uh, when I, when I was in college, and this was in the in the 60s and, you know, everybody was very radical and, and uh, you know, generally sort of looked down on, quote, Hollywood movies, because, you know, they didn't speak to them. When they got to the scene where the marching Boy Scouts are uh, inundated with fire hoses by the goons, Mm -hmm. they were just just shocked. They they didn't think that movies ever discussed things like that, you know. Well,
1: you know, when they showed the movie in Washington, the filmmakers were run out of town by an indignant Congress. How dare you suggest that there's corruption in Washington? (laughs)
0: gonna take a break from our chat with Nicholas Meyer to uh, have a special word from our sponsor. We um, always stop at this point to talk about Movies Unlimited, uh, or Great. And they asked us to, uh, this week, discuss one movie that they're gonna be carrying that's gonna drop this very day. Uh, the good folks at Synapse Films are putting out Dario Argento's, do you know about this, Joe? They're putting out Phenomena, Uh First time well, ever.
3: about time.
0: It's about to, it's first time ever on the 4K Ultra HD format, and it's gonna be. Um, it's like there's three different cuts of this thing, and, and well, that's what? that's
3: that's the phenom- that's the phenomena of phenomena, <laughs> uh, which is that uh, when we saw it originally uh, in America, it was called Creepers, right. and it was cut by I think like 30 or 40 minutes. I mean, it was like an 80 minute movie, yeah, it's wow. a two hour picture.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: uh and um and then in between there was another another version also that was sort of a, a little bit longer but uh but the, the, as as with all Argento's pictures they're they're all better in the original cut they're they're the, the new the distributor's second guessing uh of his pictures has always been a, yeah. a, a problem and um and particularly because they're well, they're they're movies from overseas and um some some of the dialogue is not in english and so it's they're dubbed in various different ways uh but they usually have um uh western players in them and uh this one has Jennifer Connolly, yep uh, who is uh, the great Jennifer Connolly, and uh, quite young and uh and puts up with a lot of insects
0: yes yes uh but yeah here they have, they have the 83 minute cut the US version the international cut 110 and the Italian version 116 it's packed full of stuff trailers commentaries uh, Great, great title here is a new uh, no, a 2017 documentary of Flies and Maggots.
3: Yeah, how can go wrong? Oh, you know, can't go wrong with, with flies, flies and, and maggots. maggots. Come on, ask your dog. <laughs>
0: <That's>, <laughs> but just packed, packed, packed with stuff and it drops today. And you can get it at our sponsor, MoviesUnlimited.com, uh, where shipping is always free, over $50. Yeah,
3: invite some friends and run it with a group because it's a good group movie.
0: That is true.
3: Hey, are you tired of spending hours searching for the perfect footage, music, or image for your next project? Look no further than Storyblocks. They are a curated library of over a million 4K HD assets, including footage, templates, sound effects, and images offers an unlimited selection of professional content to choose from.
0: That's right, Joe. Storyblocks also offers predictable subscription plans, allowing users to easily test different options without worrying about draining their budget. Monthly and annual plans are offered at a set cost with no hidden or extra fees. On top of that, their licensing and coverage make it easy for users to understand and use the company's assets without getting bogged down in legal jargon. It really is idiot proof. You know how I know? Because every time we've done one of these, I go get a bunch of their sound effects and I throw them in here and I can figure it out. So, and I'm an idiot. That's my point. The company offers thousands of pre-made professional motion graphic templates for popular editing programs, such as After Effects, Premiere Pro, and Apple Motion. Adobe Premiere Pro users will love Storyblocks as the company offers a plugin for the program that streamlines the creative process by bringing the company's unlimited royalty-free library directly into the editor, allowing users to discover and download new content without having to switch between platforms. So visit storyblocks.com the themovies to discover how Storyblocks can elevate your video production.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: The next are are really two Jules Verne movies that I have to pair: um, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea and uh, Around the World in Eighty Days. I was I was yeah. and remain because I never outgrow my enthusiasms a big Jules Verne fan. My dad, who introduced me to Sherlock Holmes, also introduced me to Jules Verne, and Walt Disney made this. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I, I think in many ways was certainly the best movie he was ever personally involved with. It's it's a rather depressing movie if you are paying attention to it. It ends with the atom bomb going off. Um, and But it is one of the most beautifully designed movies I've ever seen, designed mm-hmm. by a man who was not allowed to take credit for it. His name was Harper Goff, and the producer, the designers' guild, wouldn't give him a. a, He's listed as a consultant or something, but um, Verne described the Nautilus as looking like a cigar, and Harper Goff said to Walt Disney, "No one's going to want to watch a cigar for two hours." (laughs) Novel also says that it's mistaken for a sea monster. So let me fool around and try to do something that you know works out to be both. Mm. And he sort of pioneered steampunk with what the Nautilus mm-hmm. looks like. Uh, this time it was my parents who forgot they'd left me in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> so they couldn't get angry this time when twenty four hours later, whenever it was by the by which point I had bonded with the Nautilus, which became the mother ship uh, in every sense. And it wasn't just the exterior the the steampunk of it, it was the interior of this the the captain Nemo's collections the 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 beauty of the whole thing. I think it was uh, shot by uh, franz um um, um Blanking. A, Franz Planer. Planer. Franz Planer shot it, um, there we go. and Paul Smith wrote the music with a little help from J. S. Bach's Toccata in D minor. Um, and I don't think I understood fully watching it what this movie was really on about underneath all the spectacular bells and whistles. But if you listen to what Nemo, who was wonderfully played by James Mason, and uh, Professor Aranax, who's played by Paul Lukash, are actually talking about, um, it's pretty heavy um, and very uncompromising. There's not a a girl lead. There's not, there's there's, at one point, there's a, 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 a pet seal in the movie but only as a kind of a sidebar to what's really going on. Um, So there was that, and it was followed almost immediately by the next movie that really changed my life, which was the Mike Todd Around the World in 80 Days movie, which I suspect is not necessarily a great movie, but it came with a program book, $2 at the Rivoli Theater for the program. That's where I
3: saw it too, on a school trip.
1: And I, I still have the the program book. I you know if I were if I were on camera, it would be worth my while to get up and show it to you. Um, but there were a lot of articles about the making of the movie. And one article said, "You too can make a motion picture. No previous experience oh. necessary." That's what that's what it said. <laughs> and it was a way of trotting out the rather. Amazing statistics of Mike Todd's solo venture into making a movie he was he was killed in a plane crash not very long after. But um, you know I was eleven years old. you too can make a motion picture, no previous experience <laughs> necessary. I was completely enthralled by this movie as as was my father, the other Jules Verne and the Fan in the in the family,
2: and I came out of it and said,
1: I want to make a movie. And not being the sharpest knife in the drawer, the movie that I wanted to make was the one I had just seen. Of course, I will play. <laughs> I will play Phileas Fogg. I said, I'm Pop, you have an eight millimeter wind up Revere camera. You you can be in charge. You can do the you know the I'm, I'm I don't know if I knew what directing was, but you can do that part."
4: That's boring, and he exactly.
1: Fell in to this scheme with an, with I now recognize a suspicious alacrity. He was an <laughs> artist, Monkey. We spent the next five years making our Around the World in 80 Days movie. We shot oh, on wow. weekends, we shot on school vacations, we shot on summer holidays. Eventually, inevitably, we shot out of sequence. So I grew smaller and taller as the movie was edited together. Um, and it was eventually it was about an hour long. And we eventually added a magnetic sound stripe to the eight millimeter and added some non-sync oh, wow. sound. I think Fogg's theme song was Pump and Circumstance. Um, and when I watched Steven Spielberg's movie, The Fablemans, and I saw them I'm editing the movie that, yeah. on the kitchen table. I knew exactly that they was like they're telling the story of my life. And only our parents' roles were reversed. My mother had no particular interest or understanding what we were doing. But my dad and I, as I say, despite all the fights we had during our adolescence and all the misunderstandings and disagreements, it all got shelved when it was time to shoot the movie. So that's my. Those are my twenty thousand leagues and around the world. So what
3: What did you do for locations? For, since you're supposedly going around the world.
1: <laughs> well, we shot in Central Park. That was India at one point. We went to Cowboy City, New Jersey. Ah, I went. I went there. Wild West City, I think it was called. What? Uh, well, we went to one of those places where that was our Wild West place. Um, we had Fog and um land in, not in Spain, but in Arabia. And we used the dunes on Cape Cod to shoot Arabia.
3: <laughs> it's an epic.
1: <laughs> so it was like that. It was. And my dad would get ideas for this thing. For example, they have to take a balloon someplace.
0: I was going to ask how you, yeah, well, <laughs> that's the iconic image, of course. Lying awake,
1: he thought, well, what about a beach umbrella photographed from the bottom with a wicker laundry basket hanging underneath it. And then, you know, the pulling away, having uh, a rope on a pulley, yank the beach umbrella? Upwards, along with the basket, and then we cut to a, a helium balloon from Central Park. Uh, you know, and then we cut to the inside of an airplane looking out of you know it was like that. It was, it, that's sort of its charm, is that you see the ingenuity that went into. And then we went to the Bronx Zoo and shot lions with a cap pistol. Over a moat, and one of them obligingly rolled over to go to sleep. So it looked like we shot him. Um, so, so since this
3: since this isn't likely to be a movie that's uh, carried by Movies Unlimited, where, where can we where can we see this epic?
0: Around, yeah. As so, I say, so, yeah. Do you do you still? Oh, have yeah. this Film.
1: Well, listen, I I don't know where you're located, but Joe, if you want to come over for dinner, and I'll show you the movie. It's oh, very it's, it's on a DVD and it's several generations removed. So it's all very it's it, you would say, well, this is not a good print, and indeed it isn't. Um, <laughs> but you'll get the, that you'll would get be the general
3: idea and we'll serve popcorn. I'll write a review.
0: <laughs> oh my god, I'm I'm yes. We were <laughs> actually that would written be amazing. up. amazing.
1: Uh, A woman that we knew in New York saw the movie and was really enchanted by it. And she worked for Harper's Bazaar, and she wrote a big article, or it seemed like a big article, about us. And then we rented the movie to children's parties all over the United States. Wow! What an entrepreneur. Oh, my God. Uh, Wow. And kids liked it because, you know, it was kids all doing it. And grownups liked it because they could appreciate the... uh, the ingenuity
0: of it wow that's incredible i also have to ask and i'll, I'll tell you why because it, it got re-released when i was a kid and it was one of those movies that for a while it just if you were an adult in my orbit um somehow i cajoled you because my parents just got sick of the fucking thing i think to take me to see around the world 80 days again and i actually i own the blu-ray i have not watched it i have not seen it in 100 years every time it comes up in kind of public discourse it's it's people say things about it that are yes, unkind yes they do and and i don't have you gone i don't want to go back as an adult and see it and discover that i think they're correct have you watched it as i an have adult?
1: watched it as an adult though though not recently um and i don't have a blu-ray but i do have a dvd if there were a a blu-ray i would get it i would absolutely okay. want, to, want to own it, see it. the thing um First of all, it's a pretty, in some ways, it's a very sophisticated movie. It's really a spoof of a lot of Victorian locutions. And it's not an accident that S.J. Perlman, you know, did the polish. And the way they they talk, if you're remotely literate, is hilarious. Um, The other joy for somebody like me or Joe is to see all the stars. Because it's just like unbelievable to all the people. Um, And there's real wit involved in the whole thing. Uh, Todd had this idea that there was only one person to play any given role. If you want to show a woman and begin with her legs, there's only one set of legs. And that's Marlena Dietrich, period, the end. If you want to know who is the perfect um, piano player in the bordello, you know, it, it, or or the saloon, it's Frank Sinatra. That's the end. He doesn't have to say anything. It's Frank Sinatra. And right. and there are 50 of these things. Everybody from Glennis Johns, Hermione Gink, Buster Keaton, you're on a train going through the West. There's only one person who can play the conductor. It's got to be Buster Keaton.
0: And so on. got to be Keaton.
1: And so on. <laughs> um, and that is, you know, charming for those of us who are movie buffs. But you don't
0: have to. Well, honestly, as, as a kid, most of those would have been wasted on me. And yeah, they were totally wasted on of joy, me. But now, just be pure joy. They, they were totally that, so.
1: wasted on me. But, uh, you know, seeing Ronald Coleman. Uh, you know, or yeah. Cedric Hardwick or whatever it doesn't matter. Um, and you don't need to know that stuff,
0: but but it, it would it would work on me. It's now, a lot of I fun. So. That movie. Right.
1: it's a nice I score mean, by Victor Young, it has tremendous end credits. Um, I remember the song. So that and Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. 1954, 1956, had a big, uh, well, you know, it, it started me making movies. What can I tell you?
3: And then because Jules Verne, uh, the studios discovered that those pictures made money and that Jules Verne was in the public domain. Uh, and that led yeah, they to made a lot, of, a Jules lot Verne. of Jules Verne movies, most of them having very little to do with Jules Verne.
1: And very little to do with being good movies.
3: But Carol Zeman's uh, Czechoslovakian uh, movie, uh, The Incredible Invention, is a, a, a fabulous
1: Jules Byrne movie. Oh, that's interesting. I read a screenplay. I don't know if you have time for diversions here, but...
0: All the time in the world.
1: I read a screenplay when I was living in London, and I am so vexed that I didn't save the screenplay or know we moved, and it was very chaotic, and it, and so I don't know who wrote it. The screenplay was set in a hospital for the wounded in World War I, and the hospital was a converted mental asylum. They needed to convert it because there were so many wounded in France. And the director of the hospital, there's only one patient left from the mental asylum. And it was Jules Verne's nephew who had, in fact, shot his uncle. I don't know if you know that Verne was assassinated. He didn't die; he spent the rest of his life with a bullet in him. Hmm. And this deranged nephew had shot him. And in the it's the thesis of the screenplay that I read that the doctor. In conversation with his patient, and the patient says to him, basically, I shot my uncle to try to prevent the future. Hmm. Because I saw all his inventions and predictions coming true. And this is in the middle of World War I with airplanes and dirigibles and all these artifacts of war. He thought he could stop all that. If he killed his uncle, hmm. I wish I knew where that screenplay was or who that man was who wrote it.
0: Hmm. That's a really interesting idea. Uh, well, let's let's uh, let's move on to what is next. Well,
1: I put down Twelve Angry Men. Ah. Um, and I realize it started life as a television show, but. It's just such a terrific movie. And Sidley Sidney Lamette shot it so brilliantly mm-hmm. that you I think you never think of it as either a television movie or a or even a play, which it might just as well be. But I love that the camera starts high and over the course of the yeah. movie keeps going lower and lower and closer and closer. To these guys, these 12 men, trapped in a very hot jury room, trying to decide whether a young man is guilty or not of murder. And they've all got individual things, you know. It, it's I don't have a lot to say about. It. Here's another th- theory of mine. I think that the very greatest works of art kind of defy critical traction. you sort of slide down the walls of its perfection and you mm. can't get a grip. It's easier to talk about around the world in 80 days which is not <laughs> any kind of a perfect film right right um, but you know when you're when you're talking about middle March it's hard to say something smart about it other than wow <laughs> it's hard for me to say something smart about Henry V except wow, um, and I guess, you know, some somebody who's like more analytic than I am, and, and I am not a good analyst of things, uh, can speak to what makes it wow, the great acting, the great writing, the great camera work. Oh, okay, I'm making this laundry list, but it's not like I think I have Clever things to right. say about it. I just That's say if the you've things never, that work. If you've never yeah. seen this movie. I think you should watch it. Have you seen the TV uh, version? No. Have you, Joe?
3: Yeah. It was. Uh, it's. It's only an hour long. It was like an Armstrong Circle Theater kind of thing. Uh, and you know who played the uh, Henry Henry the Fonda? Um, you know who played that part? No. Robert Cummings.
4: Oh wow! Really.
3: Hmm. Although several of the the cast of the TV thing did move to the movie.
1: You know what Hitchcock said about Robert Cummings?
3: Yes, he said uh, it was not entirely complimentary.
1: He said he had a comic face.
3: And that's why he didn't like using him in um, Saboteur, because it was a universal picture and they didn't have a lot of money. So he didn't get his second choices for all the cast.
1: But it also had its it's the same problem in dialem for murder is he had this idea or conviction, and there may be a some variant of truth in what he was saying. I don't know if it's his face or or his his affect as a performer, where you don't quite believe. I I haven't seen him in the television version of 12 Angry Men, so he's fine, but he's no Henry Fonda. <laughs> no, well, Henry Fonda is cinema's epitome of decency. Well, he's Tom Joad. Unless, unless <laughs> you right. get, is that what? He's Tom Joad. Tom Joad, yes. Tom Joad. I thought you said he's not Jewish, which is... <laughs> I
0: don't think he is actually. Though. unless yeah. Joe's a Joe's big. On he, he, he only likes non-Jewish actors. I think we've got a scoop here this week. That, <laughs> mm. um Well, so yeah. So he's not as well, well. Henry Fonda, and that's the thing is, you believe. I mean, it's such a great script, but you do believe that Henry Fonda could could win that argument finally. It's you know, interesting that think. when
1: you see Once Upon a Time in the West, where he's mm-hmm. a bad guy, there are actors who simply cannot be bad guys. Oh, he's so bad. And he's really bad. Yeah. Um, well,
0: I, you start off by shooting a child in the face. That's um, that's usually, a, <laughs> that, that'll mark you.
3: That's why he wanted him.
0: I think, well,
1: I, I have this theory about actors who are maybe set free uh, under certain circumstances. It's a Stanislavski story about the green umbrella they were putting on a play. And um, the actor wasn't in rehearsal getting the getting the character until they got to the tech rehearsal and someone handed him a green umbrella. And the moment he held that umbrella, he became that person. Mm-hmm. So I can think of, for example, Paul Newman in Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. And when they gave him those steel rim spectacles, Mm. put over the those baby blues. He became a, you know, Presbyterian, Midwestern, uptight businessman withholding. It, th- th- those glasses freed him in the mm. same way that Anthony Hopkins in Howard's End said, once they put the mustache on him, he said, great, I play the mustache. Uh, <laughs> and he he knew what to do. And I'm not sure, but when when they started stretching Henry Fonda's skin back to make him look younger, mm-hmm. it, it didn't also. It the, by the way, the good. greatest biography of an actor that I think I've ever read is a life of Henry Fonda called The Man Who Saw a Ghost. And it, it's written by a poet. And you learn, you learn something extremely shocking about Henry Fonda. You don't learn it till the end of the book. But it explains, I think, a lot.
0: you going to spoil it for us or do we have to? Uh...
3: No, we have to read the book. I'm Let's not that kind of book.
1: girl.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, the, man, yeah, I, he's... the man who saw a ghost.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I, I always think of that performance. I mean, Once Upon a mm-hmm. Time in the West is one of my favorite movies. And it's just, it's so... I just, I wonder about actors who can't do that or who haven't done that. I'm, I'm always, I don't know what that, I, I keep waiting for Tom Hanks to one day give us.
1: He can't do, no, I was going to tell you, he can't do it.
0: Jimmy why, Span- why do you think that is? I'm fascinated by him never, he never really plays a real villain.
1: Uh, he tried in Bonfire of the Vanities.
0: Well, that, you can't blame him for that one. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: not. Nobody, <laughs> but, you know, it was a William Hurt role, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I made him a villain in my movie Volunteers, but he was a comic villain. He yeah, you you were never supposed to really believe it. Um. The other day, or no, today at lunch, I was lunching with a friend and who had shown me a French film that I had just seen, very disturbing film, and wanted to talk about whether or not it was possible or desirable to do an American version. And one of the people in the French movie is one of these right-wing, uh, you know, sort of white supremacist anti-Semite people. And and who said, who should, you know, who would play that thing? And I said, the person to get is Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if he would decide to go for that. But the thing about Tom Hanks, I noticed, is lately he only plays people named Captain. <laughs> he's, a, he's a captain in in uh, Saving Private Ryan. He's a captain of the Destroyer and the Greyhound. He's the captain in Captain Phillips. Um, he's the Colonel, he's the Colonel in Elvis. He's the Colonel in Elvis. He's Colonel in Elvis. He got promoted. But usually, <laughs> I think most of the time, if you look in the last 10 years, He's he's usually the captain. Yep. Um, anyway, we've we've strayed from. We digress.
0: No, well, I'm I'm very. He just seems like somebody who should have by now, and I'm I'm vaguely obsessed with it. Jimmy for some Stewart reason. can. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart went dark.
1: Mean fuck. Yep. Just, just look either at "It's a Wonderful Life," mm-hmm. one angry guy, and he came back from the war. One and angry- all those Anthony Mann westerns.
0: And yes, yeah, the Winchester seventy-three, and yeah. you bet. But also,
1: the Flight of the Phoenix. Yep, he's really a mean cuss in the Flight of the Phoenix, and you believe it.
0: I'm telling you, Tom Hanks needs to shoot a child in the face. That's all I'm saying. What what is what is next?
1: Um, well, I wrote. I, maybe this is a cheat because you asked for ten, and I put Godfather's one and two. I think it's fair. Um, it's fair. And again, I don't know what to say that's intelligent about these movies. Exactly. I I do think (laughs) that two is even better than one. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had an interesting conversation with Francis Coppola about these movies. I was in San Francisco. I was at dinner at his house which was then in San Francisco. I have no idea. Um, I was in the middle of being asked to write a sequel to The 7% Solution. Oh, oh. And this dinner took place about three or four nights before he won the Oscar for Godfather Two. And I was dithering about whether I should go back to Sherlock Holmes. And I said, why did you do the second Godfather movie? And he gave me a a three-part answer, as I recall. He said, well, in, in no particular order, they backed up a truck with a ton of money in it. And I felt this would buy me the right to fail with other projects. I would put this in my bank account, and then I could experiment with other stuff. Mm -hmm. Number two, I was curious to see if I could go back to the same vein and mine it for more ore, just to see if there was more there. And I wanted it to be more there. Number three, and this was the part that really intrigued me. Because I was always troubled, this is Coppola, by the fact that I found Godfather 1, an amoral movie. Not an immoral movie, but an amoral movie. It bugged me. And I didn't have the clout to do anything about it. But let's face it, in Godfather 1, we've sort of loaded the dice in favor of the Corleone family. They're not into drugs. They're not into prostitution. They're just into gambling. And, you know, that kind of gets under the radar as being not that big of a deal. He said, so I wanted the chance to make Godfather 2 into a moral movie. And he did. And I think Mm -hmm. that's why it's a better movie.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never read anything of them talking about that, but that's uh, that's kind of perfect. Wow, oof! Uh, and and so you do you? What did you come out of that with? That conversation uh, visa. Well, I went and
1: wrote the sequel to the Seven Percent Solution, probably for the first reason. Thinking, okay, an artist's life is uncertain, and if there's a chance to st- Put some money away, maybe I should do it. Sure. Um, and the book came out, it's a really good book. The West End Horror, yeah, it is the most straight on Holmes imitation I've ever done. Most of the rest have little uh pinks in them, but th- this was just trying to do Doyle qua Doyle.
0: That's wonderful, yeah, it's a great book. Um So what, uh, uh, oh, my God, you're not going to have much to say about the next one either. Well. (laughs) Another perfect movie. It's all perfect movies from here on out, Joe.
1: I I love the bridge on the River Kwai. I do love its perfection. I love its almost Conradian sense of irony, how Mm -hmm. these two opposing people kernels from dueling kernels from dueling cultures, um, following their own ineluctable logic, wind up doing the things that they're doing. I love the performances. I love the music. I think Alec Guinness is, I think he's the greatest actor. Let me digress. A daughter of mine came home from college some years ago and said, Papa, I got a bone to pick with you. You showed me Gene Kelly, but you never showed me Fred Astaire. Mm. And having seen Fred Astaire, I have to tell you that Gene Kelly looks kind of self conscious by comparison. With Fred Astaire, it's just it's just there. Well, I felt like a terrible father, and then some. (laughs) Time later, I won't extend this anecdote, I'll just say that Stanley Donnan came to dinner. And Stanley Donnan, who had directed both Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, was sitting at the table. My three daughters were staring at him. It's too bad this camera isn't working, because they were just three nymphs. Just staring at this man, they had seen Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. They had seen Royal Wedding. They had seen Singing in the Rain. They had seen Two for the Road. They had seen um, Charade. And the poor guy was trying to have a meal. And the (laughs) fates were, you know. And finally, I said to the oldest one, I said, ask him. You know, he directed them both. Give me your theory. She goes, no, I couldn't. I said, "You know, talk to him. So she goes, Mr. Don, and he goes, Stanley. She goes, Stanley. I was just wondering, and she enunciates her thesis. What do you think, Mr. St- Stanley? Stanley, and he says, "Well, prefacing my answer by reminding you that Gene Kelly was my friend, who came out to Hollywood together. Hmm. I have to say." And I think you're absolutely right. (laughs) And he said, and then this was the interesting part to me, among the countless distinctions and divisions that you can make about art and artists is this one, that there are artists who never let you forget that you're experiencing them. Marlon Brando, Fellini,
4: Olivier, and then there is what
1: Stanley Dunn called the great invisibles. Where is Vittorio De Sica when you were watching The Bicycle Thief? V- Where is the director? Invisible. When you watch Alec Guinness? Invisible. When you watch Fred Astaire? Invisible. It's just happening. Right. When he, he said, <clears> and <throat> by the way, I'm not saying one of these is better than another. The world would be a poorer place without Marlon Brando, but when you see on the waterfront, you're not seeing Terry Malloy, you're seeing Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy, Marlon Brando as Stanley Kowalski. Alec Guinness, where is it? Mm-hmm. Fred Astaire, where is it? You know, he he didn't want to do the bridge on the river Kauai because he saw himself as a light comedian. And they first offered it to Charles Lawton, who was, I think, too large to be a persuasive, emaciated POW in the... Oh, for sure, yeah. Whatever. Um, But the whole movie is so much of a piece. I know that everybody loves Lawrence of Arabia more than anything, and so do I. But it's not as perfect a movie. It's a a character portrait of a a most unusual man in a most unusual time and place. But the bridge on the River Kwai is a real tragedy. It's a real flat-out, full-throated, this is awful, deeply moving tragedy. You're not looking at it through the wrong end of a telescope. It's in your
4: face. What have I done? What yeah. have
1: I done?
0: It's it's so interesting the way you put it too about the two characters earlier. Maybe think of um, have either of you? It, it it's so flown under the radar. I think Joe, we've talked about it a little bit. Uh, have you seen Living? The, oh, I love Living. Uh, it's it's a remake. Yeah, of Akira. Of yeah. uh, um, not a not is it Akira? Yeah, it's Akira. In my brain. Yeah, and and the thing that sort of hits me watching it is how, yeah. as much as they are two very disparate cultures. Um, how much the kind of that classical Japanese culture with, with, you know, all the, all the rules and regulations of behavior um, and, and how the British uh, sort of go along with that too. There's a, there's a different approach to it, but it's the same thing. The moment that
1: the, there's a, the moment in the, in the British and the Requai, which is always very interesting to me is when Colonel Saito is finally forced to relent. British officers will not be forced to do manual labor, and Colonel Nicholson will be freed from the oven. And mm-hmm. he can hear, Saito can hear the cheering. The place is going crazy outside. And he, we cut to him, and he's lying on his bed sobbing like a yeah. child from loss of face. There's always some jerk in the movie theater who laughs it's, they're, they're so freaked out that they yeah. laugh
0: yeah. Uh, uh, glorious film and yeah and I, I agree as much as I'm like I, I will only ever see Lawrence uh, on a big screen in a theater something-
1: or I watch it on my phone but <laughs> <laughs> like everybody else I just said that to get a laugh I, I've killed people for less So what's the next one? Yes, Um, the next one is the Graduate. Ah, yes. the The Graduate is a is a kind of mysteriously wonderful movie to me, and particularly, I guess, to my generation. I don't think they set out to capture the zeitgeist. I hope I'm using that word correctly. Um, yeah. of what was going on at the time. but but it does. And the interesting thing about works of art is they preserve history in a kind of amber. if you and movies are very good at this. If you want to see what the Middle Ages look like, the middle of the movies can kind of show it to you or some version of it. Mm -hmm. You want to see what outer space looks like? The movies can serve it up. But all works of art are ineluctably products of the time in which they are created. I venture to say that if I were to show you four movies that are ostensibly set in 1776, And one is made in 1906, and one is made in 1936, and one is made in 1966, and so on. You would be able to tell within five minutes, five years, when these things were made. Right. And the graduate, it seems to me, captures in a bottle a certain time and place, whether they, whether that was their intention, or not. Um, when the guy says plastics. To Ben, um, or the uh, moment when Ben and Elaine are talking at the at the drive-in restaurant, and he says something about I have this urge to be rude to everybody all the time. Joe, do you remember the line I'm talking about? He 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 says something like I I I have this. I'm paraphrasing the line, but it's about a. I don't know why, but I want to be rude to everybody. and you you hear, however inarticulately expressed the revolt that was coming against the establishment that Ben and Elaine, they're going to wind up on a hippie commune, even though no one knew about hippie communes when they made the movie. Mhm. But it's just, to me, it's wonderfully prescient. Also, it's a romantic story. And and I also love what the writer did, or the writers, at the very end of the movie. This was such a shock to me, where the mommy is yelling through the church door, it's too late, meaning they're already married. And the girl says, not for me. (laughs) Oh, boy. that's one of the great last lines,
3: mm. and it has one of the great last shots too. With oh yeah, they're on the bus. Yeah. yeah, they sit on the bus together and and go through a a raft of emotions and thoughts.
4: Yes, that absolutely. That leave you with the
3: idea that maybe this isn't the best pairing of the oh. world. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or what are we going to do yeah. now and so forth. Yeah, now what happens? But I I found it wonderfully romantic. I thought she was the most beautiful. Girl, I'd ever seen, and Lord, yes. why is it that the hero? Never mind. Ah, <laughs>
0: uh, ah, uh, what? What is next? Well, next is
1: is my last choice, but it's not really my last choice because we could sit here till the crack of doom. <laughs> that's, thats what they all say.
0: Yes. <laughs> oh, so I'm, I want you to do ten. It's leader. hard to
3: do ten, but you know, and you, you and you did. You managed to do ten without actually adhering to Tim, because you, you did a whole lot of stuff about The Beggar's Opera that ordinarily people would say, well, that was the first book.
1: Well, you, no, you asked me. I didn't. Yeah, that was, you that was. was like, you, you, I, you I opened the, the door for it. that, Joe. We don't, we can't ticket at him. Uh, my last one, uh, and these are not in the order of preference. They're more or less in some ways the order of influence in a, mm. in a way. Um his rules of the game of Jean Renoir um, talk about perfection. Uh, it is a humanist view of human beings that isn't and 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 the thin veneer of what we call civilization. And I'm fascinated that, as the movie goes along, these very, very sophisticated, And chic people wind up with fewer and fewer clothes on, chasing each other like savages until somebody dies. Um, And yet, you watch the declension, the stages by which all the veneer of civilization is stripped away. Um, And yet, the film somehow does not lose. And never forfeits its own humanity.
3: It is a it is a fabulous movie, and uh, again, another movie that I think is 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 too seldom seen to be appreciated as for what it is.
1: Uh, well, here's probably. my my pet peeve is when somebody uses the phrase "old movies." Mm. I can't stand this. It's like waving a red flag in front of a boss. You mean like old books? Yeah. Like like oh that old that old bible book that old dickens book that old uh, there's either movies you've seen or movies you haven't seen there's books you've read or books you haven't read if you've never seen whistler's mother you might want to take a look at the at the be a new painting but don't tell me oh i love old paintings that's (laughs) (laughs) um or you know bach was an
0: oldie but a goodie Uh uh-huh um Go fuck yourself! I only like new paintings.
3: it has got New York, New Yorker cartoon caption.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. The, um, I, I like paintings better now that they use color. I think is wow.
3: <laughs> like movies too, because those black and white ones don't have any color.
0: That's right. The um, um
1: I well, just sidebar, and you, you guys tell me when you've had enough. But my my uh, girlfriend of now seven years has a son. He's twenty one years old, so I've known him or whatever 21 minus seven is. And I have shown him some movies and I said, have you ever seen such and such a movie? I can't remember which movie it was, but it was a a black and white movie. And he said, I don't watch black and white movies. I said, well, now you will. Mm. Now you will. So I showed him this movie and then I showed him, I think I showed him the treasure of Sierra Madre or something, by which time his jaw was on the floor. And he subsequently wrote a whole essay, in for high school, in praise of black and white, which Orson Welles, remember, called the actor's friend. <laughs> um, and um, so I, and my kids, I, and when I taught at Chapman and I would show movies, I was of course called drama for directors. I never said anything about the movie. I just showed the movie. We talked. We talked about Aristotle's Poetics. We talked about how drama works. Then every week I would show him a movie, and it didn't matter whether it was a sound movie or a color movie or a foreign movie or whatever. And I with no words of introduction, let the movie speak for itself, and then we can talk about it. Um, But I, you know, I just I go crazy when I hear that old movie crap. It's just yeah it's offensive. Yeah. It's profoundly offensive. Somebody said that those who do not learn the lessons that history teaches are condemned to repeat those lessons. You don't want to be the second guy who said that a woman's lips were like a rose because you never read the place where the first guy said it. because you sound like a a jerk. I know, or you know, look, I just invented the wheel, really? you're a little late um so i i think that movies old and new works of art old and new books music old and new should be approached indiscriminately
0: mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always amazed we've talked about this in the show before too that um you know run into filmmakers who who think that way and talk that way and and <clears throat> you know say so forget forget the edification forget the joys that you may find from these things just on a sheer mercenary level there is so many great there are so many great movies that people don't know anymore they're just waiting to be strip mined from <laughs> you know for ideas for shots for, well
1: i first of all you know art drifts in and out of fashions i was somebody right. was interviewing me the other day and saying you know isn't it great that people will always love the wrath of khan and i said well they won't you know that it'll it'll drift out of fashion.
0: Never going to happen. People will
1: find fault. <laughs> Pauline K. will write a big essay about you know terrible,
0: terrible example. <laughs> and
1: then, and then in another fifty years, if we're, we haven't blown ourselves up, it'll come back and people say, oh, you know this was good. Um, Tchaikovsky drifts in and out of fashion all the time. Was dismissed as schmaltz or whatever. Stephen Sondheim. None of his shows were hits except I think Into the Woods. And yet he was the closest thing we had to Mozart. And now they're restaging Sweeney Todd full scale, 45 years later. It's uh, true. It's
3: as Hitchcock true. once said, it'll all be cornflakes corn in a can in the future. That was used to talk about movies uh, and the idea of how how, what kind of longevity they were going to have.
1: I don't and, think that artists are the best judges of their own work. I think Tchaikovsky hated the oh. Nutcracker. Bizet wrote the Toreador song and said, oh, well, the public wants shit. There it is. I talked to Alexander McKendrick once about, I can't remember if it was Sweet Smell of Success or the Lady Killers. And he had emphysema at the time. And he said something like, well, that's another one I fucked up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, oh, my God. and so we shouldn't, what Hitchcock has to say about Hitchcock is not very interesting to me. What his movies have to say is much more so. Uh, And I just think art should speak for itself. I'm very suspicious about those explanation lectures um, that are given before the concert and stuff like that. I just, let me just hear the music and I'll tell you what I think. By the way, you know, contrary to that, I always loved reading the backs of record jackets. I just curling up on the couch when I put the record on and listening to the liner notes about where Mozart was when he wrote this. That's cool for some reason with me. I just don't want to hear anybody talking about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. That's kind of why we do the show. It's like uh, instead of, it's why we try not to talk to our guest about their work. Uh, we'll have to cut all that stuff about you and around the world in 80 days and so forth. But. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, as I say, I'm, it's it's not my field of expertise.
1: Somebody said to Margot Fontaine after a performance, she said, "They said, Oh, Dame Margot, I so enjoyed what you were doing, your performance. What were you doing up there?' <laughs> <laughs> and or, or some some words like that and. And Margot Fontaine had the presence of mind to say, "I'm very sorry, but I explained what I was doing while I was doing it." Exactly. <laughs> Didn't understand me, then I failed.
0: There's a there's a marvelous Elvis Costello quote that is loved to death. Where some critic was asking him what uh, what a song he had written was about, and Elvis said, "If I could have said it in other words, I would have."
1: Oh, and Balanchine's line was. When somebody said, what's your ballet about? He said, that's none of my business. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Um, well, well, Nick, man, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. This has been such a pleasure for me. I've, uh, uh, I've been a fan of your work for a very long time. Well,
1: um, it was a, a real treat because we get to talk about things that we love. Yes. That we love. And... You know, I don't. I don't get to do that a lot because half the time when I mention the movie, no one's seen the movie.
0: <laughs> well, you came, you came to the right place. Well, our,
3: so. our fans have a, a deep well of
1: knowledge of them. Well, if you get any feedback, tell me. Okay,
0: hundred uh, uh, percent. Thank you so much. Um can it's it's been a pleasure. in the um, sorry about
1: talking. meeting the Invisible Man. I'm, yeah, sorry. When, I'm, when I'm off, I'm going to try to figure out what the fuck this was, but.
0: By the way, you said earlier, well, what are you going to come up with to say that Shakespeare has not said before you? I don't think Shakespeare ever complained about Zoom transmissions. So
1: he talks about, <laughs> "I see him in my mind's eye,"
4: That's Hamlet. I see him
1: my, he thinks so. I'm in my mind's eye. Um, yeah, no, I can, I can. Uh, and he also said, or has Claudius and Hamlet say? When sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. That applies to the camera (laughs) shut (laughs) down.
0: Okay. I've been trying to compliment you all afternoon. You keep pushing back, so we'll leave it at that. Thanks, uh, Nate. Thank you. Thank you you so much. This is a pleasure. Bye.
2: The Movies That Made Me is the official podcast of Trailers From Hell, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer John Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. We are proud to be part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Learn more at airwavemedia.com. This is Josh Olsen for the Movies That Made Me.